every way to guard the way of, to the tree of life. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that you have revealed yourself. You've revealed us about ourselves. <clears throat> And you revealed uh, how we might know you. And so, Lord, that is your word. The 66 books of the Bible are infallible and errant. And, Lord, so as we come to them, we should no less expect to be transformed. And so help us to do that this morning. Open our hearts and our minds that we might clearly hear what you have us to hear this morning. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I heard a commercial recently. Um, I actually saw it. And it was uh, by, the, by Marriott Hotels. And in the commercial, you uh, see people like being nice, helping each other out and being nice to each other and so on. And uh, the script goes something like this. It would be great if human beings were great at being human. If all mankind were made up uh, of kind men and kind women. It goes on. It would be glorious if neighbors were neighborly and indifference was a forgotten word. It would be awesome if we shared everything <clears throat> and being greedy was absurd. It would be spectacular if the golden rule was golden to every man. And it just struck me. I thought, it would be cool. Everybody was nice to each other, and we all got along, whatever. And, I mean, part of me is like, I mean, this is a camp, uh, an ad campaign, and part of me is like, duh, doesn't everybody want that? Doesn't everybody want us all just to get along and to be neighborly and kind to one another and be loving and all that kind of stuff? But here's the, here's the problem, is um, there's something wrong. This doesn't happen. You know, we can't... I don't even know if we can really imagine what it would be like to live in a world in which people weren't mean to each other and cruel to each other and selfish and, and all of these things. Um, and, and here's the thing. When we talk about being human, that's what we've been talking about. What does it mean to be a human being? We've talked about how important that question is. And if you don't answer that question well... It has all kinds of negative implications in your life and in the world around us. But here's the question. With, if, if you're asking the question, what does it mean to be human? You have to ask the question, what's wrong with us? There is something fundamentally wrong with human beings. And because, you ha- because Marriott wouldn't be able to have a commercial like that if there wasn't something wrong with us, if they were, they're saying they want this ideal, they want everybody to live out this golden rule, and the reason they, they have this ideal and this desire is because, no, we don't do that. You know, we talk about to err as human. We should say is to lie, cheat, steal, the murder is human. And so there is something fundamentally wrong with humans. Um... <clears throat> And so what are, the, what are the, the issues? What is wrong? Every philosophy, every religion, every worldview answers this question. And 
frankly, I, this is where I really try to challenge people and encourage them to consider Christianity if they're skeptics and they don't believe, to say, hey, ask this question of all the philosophies. Do they answer the question of what is wrong with human beings? Well, because a lot of them will say, well, maybe it's education. And the, the reason people do bad things to each other is because they're ignorant and they're not educated. Or maybe it's a, um, a religion. Maybe it's just religion. Religion has caused people to do horrible things throughout the country. So let's just get rid of religion. Um, or maybe it's nothing at all. Maybe we're just evolutionary beings and we're just, it's just biology, survival of the fittest. That's an answer. Um, maybe it's poverty. If people, if, if we just, if everybody, we could just share the wealth, everybody would just get along and we'd do well, well together. What about, maybe it's social structures, racism and those kind of things. Maybe it's religion, I already said that. Um, maybe it's dehumanizing idolatry, uh, I, not idolatries, ideologies. I told you guys I was sick this morning. And so I'm like, I'm not really here, I'm like, Somewhere up in the cloud. So, I'll bear with me. But maybe it's dehumanizing ideologies like racism or fascism. We need to get rid of those things. And, and, and I think a lot of those things are important. Don't get me wrong. Um, there's a, a, a psychology professor at Yale named Paul Bloom. Um, he wrote a, 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 an article in the New York Times. And he was uh, basically uh, asking, answering the question... What's wrong with people? And why, particularly, um, are people so cruel and mean to each other? And why is there genocides and these kind of things? And he was responding to some other people or whatever. And he said this. He's, he, and he kind of was challenging the fact that there's kind of this common assumption that uh, the reason people are mean to each other and cruel to each other and have you know, killed each other and you know, uh, there's been genocide and all these things is because we tend to dehumanize each other. And I think he's right there. Listen to what he says here. I think some cruelty is born of dehumanization. I think some cruelty is born out of a loss of control. I think some cruelty is born out of an instrumental desire to get something you want. Sex, money, power, whatever. If your thesis is right, it's foolish to think that we can get rid of cruelty if we only got rid of those noxious ideologies that justify it. Here he says, listen to this. In the end, it's about us, not just our ideas. In the end, it's about us, not just our ideas. Interesting that he would say that. Um, Beatrice Webb, she, was, uh, she started the, the British social welfare, welfare system in the uh, 1890s, late 1800s. And she said this. She says, in my dietary in 1890, diary, in 1890, she said, I wrote, I staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power and how... how mere social machinery will never change that. No amount of science or knowledge has been able to avail. And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? So here she was. She's worked with people her whole life. And she staked everything on people who fundamentally deep down are good. And at the end, 
she realized that wasn't true. Uh, Bertrand Russell, he was a philosopher, skeptic. Actually, I remember him because I, I engaged with his book in college, Why I Am Not a Christian. Okay, but listen to what he says here. He says, I think the evils that men inflict on each other and by resection upon themselves have their main source in evil passions rather than ideas or beliefs. But ideas and principles uh, that do harm are, as a rule, though not always, cloaks for evil passions. What are they saying? They're saying basically what the Bible says. What God's word has said for thousands of years. That there is something fundamentally wrong with us as human beings. That, that it's not just ideas. It's not just social structures. It's not just um, these things that, um, that we're trying to fix on the surface. That No, there is something fundamentally wrong with each of us as humans. And these not Christian thinkers were recognizing it. So the, the problem of man rests not social, so solely excuse me, in ideas and situations, but as these people called it, evil desires. And this is what the Bible offers as the core problem for us as humans. We are broken and fall, flawed and bent with evil desires. So think about that commercial again. You know, we can't even imagine a world like it describes. That everybody would get along and everybody would be kind to each other and all that. We, we like to think about that, but the reality is it doesn't happen because we're broken. And so when we discuss what it means to be human, we must answer the question, what is wrong with us? And with that, what can we do about it? Because one thing, you've got, we want to know what's wrong, but what do we do about it? And so here in Genesis th- chapter 3, we're going to see three important experiences that answer what's wrong with us as humans and what can be done about it? So the first experience is humans experienced a great fall. Humans experience a great fall. So here in the story, you, you see God creates man and woman. He creates this um, paradise for them. He places them in the garden. And there they are. He, Adam has named the animals. He's created the woman there. And they're probably having a great time or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you have, in the story, this serpent, this snake comes along and begins to tempt them. Now, some people look at this story and they think, man, this is a silly story. Of, like, you know, it's like a little snake that comes along and here's, you know, two... Two naked people hanging out behind the bushes. That's how I've always seen it in kids' stories or whatever. And this snake comes down out of the tree or something and, and wh- starts whispering into this woman's ear and, and tempts her with this piece of fruit, this apple. And, and, and you, know, you think, man, this is just, you know, this seems like very childish or very simple. But here's the thing. It, 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 I, these are pictures of something that's uh, really, that really happened, and it was really gone, okay? And so what's really happening here, we see this, especially as you read on in Scripture, it gets more and more clear that, um, that this is an angelic being, not just a snake that comes to them. It's represented by, in the, in the story here, as a serpent, which is crafty, and normally thought of as sneaky and crafty and deceptive. And he's challenging the first humans 
with whether or not they trust this God that this has just created them. Okay, so you see, so he's coming and he's beginning to have them question their reality. And that's, he comes to them. He doesn't come to them making statements. He doesn't come to them uh, making assertions. He comes asking questions. And look, look at the first question in verse, uh, in, in, in verse 1. It says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So look at what he's saying here. Did God actually say that? Tim Keller here points out well that, that this question is, is uh, not really a question. It's more of like a jeer. It's more like mocking God. You, do you really believe that? And, and Keller, who, um, who engages quite a bit with skeptics and unbelievers, um, he's spoke at Google multiple times, and he really engages, especially there in Manhattan, people that are unbelievers and so on. He says that m- most of the questions he gets, 80, 90% of the questions that he gets when he engages with unbelievers are not genuine questions, but are more like this jeer. How can you believe that? That stuff, how can you possibly be a Christian? It's a jeer. We've got to be really careful because that creates an environment where it feels hostile and it feels um, like it's... Uh, and, and so most people, I think, who are, struggle with their faith and struggle to believe the truths of the Bible, it's because we live in an environment, in a world of jeering and mockery and snarkery. And people, especially on the internet, the trolls are out there. And so he comes to them and he's like, do you really What's funny is, what he says isn't true, so the woman has to correct it. She says, no, he didn't say we couldn't eat any tree, just that one. But he's intentionally twisted things here. Now, she must be wondering, well, why would he, why would he say, don't eat that tree? Didn't explain himself, he didn't say anything about that. Okay, and so, here's the thing. What we see here in the fall of the human race, it isn't the action at this point. Nothing has happened yet. The action of eating the fruit isn't where the fall began. It begins right here. And when, when uh, Eve listens to this, and, and it causes her to question. And so the, the fall of man doesn't begin with an act, but with an attitude. It shows the sense that this is not, the serpent is not denying what God said. He's not saying God didn't say these things. He didn't do this. He's saying, he's mocking it. He's, he's, he's having her challenge it. And so here's the thing. The, the fall of the human race starts with not an action or even with a thought, but an attitude of the heart. It's sin does, starts not with our actions, but rather with an attitude. Here it is. The attitude that, re, that begins to question whether or not God is good. And he has good intentions towards it. So he's, what he's questioning is, why would God do that? Why would God say, don't eat of that tree? We say it other ways. Because we have, God has given us more rules later on in the Ten Commandments and so on. Like, why would God say these things? You know, that's, the Bible's just a bunch of rules. That God, you know, so they think of God as this 
mean God up there who just wants to restrict all of our fun and all of our you know, good things in life. It's the same question. Is Why would God have this, this rule for us? Why would he borrow us from that one tree? And so it's beginning to ask the question, is God really have my best intentions in mind here? So when we you think about it, when we fight for, we strive for, we struggle, and we, and we have anguish, angu- anguish in our hearts about the things in our lives, about what's going to happen to us, and all these things, all the time we're asking the question, is God really good? Is he really, you know, we, we're not even asking it in a genuine way. We're saying, how could I possibly believe that God is good? So, sin starts with our questioning whether God is good. And so he doesn't deny the existence of God. He doesn't deny the law of God. He doesn't deny the will of God. He doesn't deny the holiness of God. This serpent leaves all that in place. He denies the goodness of God. And he denies the goodness and love and grace and goodwill of God behind the rule. So the the reason we struggle with the law of God is because we don't think it's good for us. We think we know better. Okay, but there's more than this, okay? Because it, it goes on, okay? Um, the, the, then he goes on to say, for God knows, I'm in verse uh, 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, talking about this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first, he has them question, are you sure God's got your back here? Are you sure he's not just trying to, you know, lord it over you and restrict your life and all these things? He can't possibly be a good God. Why would you trust him? And then he goes and shifts over and says, so, therefore, you need to be out from under him. You can be your own God. You can make your own rules. You can charge your own path. You can be like God. And so here comes the, the, we're getting to the heart of sin here, questioning God's goodness. And now the offer of autonomy and self-sufficiency. Autonomy says I chart my own path. I make my own rules. Self-sufficiency says I can do this all on my own. I don't need to trust God. I don't need him. And so here we go. And that was up, and it says, she, she saw the fruit. I'm not sure it mattered if it was an apple or a, a clump of grapes, pomegranate. It, it's not the fruit. She saw that it looked good. What looked good? To be like God. And so, the, begin, she, the, the first idolatry begins right here. You will be like God. So, sin is in essence mistrusting the goodness of God and making yourself to be God instead of God. Mistrusting the goodness of God and making ourselves to be God instead of God. He's saying, don't listen to God. He doesn't have your best in mind. He's lying to you. He's just trying to control you with all these rules. You can be your own God. And and so they decide to mistrust God's goodness, deem him a liar, and decide to become their own gods. And so, this is what we tend to call 
the fall of the human race. And so, because of this act here and this decision that they've made, there's going to be horrible consequences. So, first, they experienced the great fall. Secondly, they experienced great consequences. So, I want to walk through those real quick with you guys, okay? What were the consequences? What did this, what, what, what trouble did this cause? I mean, now that may be a silly question when we, we just talked about our world and how messed up it is. But let's be specific. What, it, what this lays out, a lot of the consequences we see in the world today, even today. Okay, it says this. In verse, uh, actually, back, God tells them back in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, In the day that you eat of that one tree, you shall surely die. Now, the serpent questioned that and said, Nah, you're not going to die. And so he really questioned that idea. And so they ate of it and they didn't die right away. So what happened? But we do know, because at the end of this chapter, it says, You are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so now, as a result of this, people face and experience physical death. Because the promise of everlasting life there in the garden, in paradise with God, forever was offered to them. However, when they rebelled against him, it was broken away. But also, not just, it wasn't just a physical death, but also a spiritual death. You see that God was, puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and there's a sense of fellowship there. Once they fell in the garden, God comes into the garden. It said that he used, to, he used to walk with them in the cool of the day. It says that they were in the presence of God. And, and so God comes to them, and all of a sudden there's a separation. They're hiding. They're ashamed. They're guilty. And then God, at the end of this chapter, drives them out of this garden. It's a picture of relational separation from God and spiritual death that will occur. So in other words, it's like if you were to go outside, find a tree, any tree or any bush, and you, you cut off the branch, that branch is in effect dead. Now it might look alive for a few days, but eventually it's going to wither and die. And that's the picture we get here, is that Adam and Eve have become separated from the source of life. But there's more to this. It gets a little more specific because we see that not only was this vertical relationship between God and man severed in this, but their relationship becomes marred and broken. Okay, so we see that human relationships were marred. So most important, and I think here, here's the thing, most importantly, it depicts that the man and the woman are now, husband and wife, are now going to be plagued with problems. And I think this is important because I don't think, I mentioned this last week, there's no more important relationship in our society. Not that other relationships aren't important, but there's no more important relationship in our society than marriage. Okay, so if you're called to be single, that doesn't mean you're worse than, than, than somebody who's married. Don't get me wrong there. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Single is a, a, a beautiful gift from God. However, God created man and woman in our world, in our society, um, ideally to be held up 
and bolstered by healthy families. I mean, it is an established fact now that if a child grows up and they do not have healthy father, healthy mother, raising them up together, it creates all kinds of pathologies. I mean, and you, you, it's just constant talk and, and chatter on the internet about our inner cities and one of the huge problems, don't get me wrong, there, you know, institutional oppression, all kinds of issues in the inner cities, but one major issue in our inner cities is a lack of fatherless, lack of fathers in the lives of young men. And they go into gangs and other problems. So, it's the, so we see the first problems being described in the relationships between this man and the, and the woman. And so we see that fundamental relationship being between the family, man and the woman being broken. And so what is it? So God describe, basically prophesies and tells them what's going to happen. And he, and he tells the woman, he says, your, <clears throat> um, your desire, let me find my place here, excuse me. Your desire will be for your husband. What does that mean? Now, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of interpretation on that. And the way I take that is that women will become overly dependent upon men in their lives. And we've seen that throughout history. And then it goes on to say with the man, the man he will rule over you. In other words, over... Uh, he's going to be dominant over the woman. He's gonna, there's going to be abuse and neglect. Have we seen that problem in the world? Women who um, are overly dependent, desiring their husband, and very often, some would even say in this, in this place, would desire the rule over their husband. So either, I think, that, I think it kind of has t- both places, that women in some places are way too dependent upon men, and others trying to be too dominant and over, overbearing. But in this, you see in the men abusing, dominance, abuse, and so on, uh, that has basically been recorded throughout history. And that the latest uh, manifestation or result of it has been the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement is a, the lived-out reality of these verses. So, but then we see it in action here. Okay, so God prophesies this is going to happen. And then we see Adam and Eve live it out. So God comes to them. And this is a really amazing act of grace. God comes to them and begins to ask them questions. He's not, he doesn't curse them. He doesn't, uh, he's not charging them or anything like that. He's like, what, what, what's going on? What happened? And, and, and they both answer, okay, God in different ways. So when he asked the woman, I'm getting this out of order, the text order here, that's okay. That he asked the woman, what have you done? What did you do? And did you eat this fruit? And, and the woman says, the serpent did it. He gave it to me. It's his fault. And then, even better, as, as Amanda read, read it, she says, um, he, he says, what did you do, Adam? He says, that woman you gave me, gave it to me. Okay, what's the problem with that statement? Two problems with that statement. Number one, he's saying, the, he's charging God. He's saying, God, this is your fault. Because you gave me that woman. And then he's blame gaming to her. He's saying, now it's her fault. 
Okay? This is like the blame game. This is them saying, you know, oh, it's not my fault. It's, it's his or her fault. His fault. It's, it's your fault, God. It's everybody's fault but my faults. And so we see it in action. I mean, think, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times. I mean, just, let me just aim at myself here. I, somebody has come to me, particularly, say, my wife, Amanda, or any, comes to me and says, you did this wrong, or you failed this, or, you, you know, and my response isn't, oh, I'm sorry, I was, uh, you're right, I, you were, I was wrong, I'm sorry. That would be the right answer, right? But what do I do? I say, no, but well, but you, you did that. As if the fact that that other person did something wrong somehow justifies that I did something wrong. It just doesn't work, does it? But we, we know, that is so normal for us. It is, we live out this text every day, don't we? I mean, and so how, when somebody comes to you and criticizes you and charges you with something, what's your response? It's not my fault. It was his fault, her fault, or, you know, your fault. You, because you're bad, you know, it somehow covers up mine. And so the blame game happens. But here's the thing. Sin is also not just us mistrusting the goodness of God and trying to be our own gods. Sin also manifests itself on a regular basis as us attempting to throw other people under the bus to justify ourselves. Sin is us throwing other people under the bus to justify ourselves and to get what we want. That is the course of human history. That we would put under, other people under us to, to lift ourselves up. I'm going I'm to climb the ladder by climbing on the heads of other people. And so if I can make you look bad to make me look good, I'm going to do it. If I can take from you to get, to get for me, I'm going to do it. If it means eventually killing you or whatever, fine. And we were talking about the, um, the dehumanization and as being a part of uh, genocide and all those kind of issues. It is, and that is a big part of it. But that's what these psychologists and these others were saying is that that isn't the fundamental thing. Is, is that normal, regular, quote-unquote, good people were coaxed into genocide, yes, by dehumanizing other people, but basically because they wanted not to be troubled. They wanted to get what they wanted. So millions of German people turned a blind eye to the, extermina- the, the attempt to exterminate the Jewish race because of their selfish desire to just get along with it and have a good little life and not be troubled and not risk anything. And so, go back to that Me Too movement. We, we say, oh, if, if I was in that circumstance, I would speak up. And he actually did a study of ladies. And I, I can't remember the, the name of the study, but uh, it was a study that they questioned they did questionnaire of all these women, and they asked them, if you were in a situation, uh, and they, you were being, you know, spoken to in a nasty way, and you were kind of, and you were being interviewed for a job, what would you, and so then they later actually did interviews with some of these women, where they were in a mock interview. They didn't, the women didn't know that. They were being interviewed, and these men were intentionally saying inappropriate things, kind of making inappropriate passes and stuff, and most of those women said nothing. 
Because we, we all say, oh, if I was there, if I was in Germany, if I was in that situation, if I saw something happen, I would speak up. Would you? According to this, we don't do that because sin, the result of sin is that we tend to throw other people under the bus for our own sakes. And so in that, we also, it begins to drive and fuel a life of shame and deceit. So when God comes to this garden, y'all remember Adam and Eve, we're told in chapter 2, God creates this woman, uh, God creates the man, and creates this, this helper, this, this person's going to fill up his lack, this person's going to compliment him, and there's this beautiful dance relationship that they're in, and it's this amazing picture of what a human relationship can look like. Two people outdoing themselves in love. And it says that um, that they, the two, the man and the woman were there in the garden. They were naked and not ashamed. They were together. They were naked and not ashamed. And I've mentioned this last week. What that means is, is that the two of them knew everything there is to know about each other without shame and guilt. And so when God comes into the garden, guess what happens? The man and the woman all of a sudden realize, oh my gosh, I'm exposed. I'm broke, you know. And, and so all of a sudden, they're, they're ashamed. They're broken. And there's guilt and shame involved. And there's te- those are terrible consequences. And those consequences are, exist today. And the reason is, is because Adam and Eve are our parents. Every one of us are descendants of Adam and Eve. Every one of us. We know this. If you bring up uh, Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul tells us that, he says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, talking about Adam here, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And so what we know of, biblically, is that every human being inherits this brokenness. Every one of us inherit this. And we recognize it. You start describing this stuff, I saw y'all smiling and laughing about some of these things, you know what I'm saying? And so you see it lived out in our world. But here's the good news, okay? They experienced a great fall, experienced terrible consequences. Thirdly, they experienced great promise. In, In the midst of this, There's an amazing promise that lays out before us. And the the first thing that we see is that God comes to them. He doesn't just cast them out. God comes to them, and it's it's a measure of grace and love. And it says that the man and the woman, and they hid, and they were ashamed. And so they began to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. And God, in, in in a measure of grace covers them, it says here, with the skins of animals. And I think that's a picture of a covering that's going to happen later. And actually you see this later when, when you have God institute a sacrificial system in which animals would die, and, and in that would be a symbol of God, of them paying the price for our sin, covering us and our guilt and our shame. But then ultimately, pointing to Jesus... Who would be one that would die. And that his blood 
would cover our sin and shame. There's another picture here that we see. Okay? We see, read with me in verse 15. This, this, this verse here is probably, is it verse 15 there? Verse 15 here is probably one of the most foundational, important verses in the Bible. It's what they call the proto-evangelion. The, pre-evangel- uh, the pre-gospel. It's a foreshadow of what is to come throughout the entire book, all the books and all the unfolding of God's word in the Bible starts right here. It says, tells them, I will put enmity between you. He's talking to the woman. I'm sorry, he's talking to the serpent here, excuse me. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what's happening here? It's kind of a strange saying here. What he's saying is to this serpent, who we now, we now know, if you, as you read on in Scripture, isn't just a snake in a tree. He's actually an angelic being, a powerful angel, one of the archangels of God that fell and, 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 and rebelled against God. And here he is tempting the woman. And, he, and, and the serpent is also a symbol of all that is evil and rebellious and contrary to God. And God is telling evil and Satan himself, there's going to be a war between you and your offspring. And your offspring is going to crush the head of all evil and all sin and so on. Okay? So the, this, but here's the thing. This word descendant here is actually our offspring is actually the word seed. The seed of the woman would be the, the descendant that would come out of a man. And that, so that, what this is saying is that one day... There's going to be a human being who's going to walk this earth and he is going to destroy Satan. He's going to destroy sin. He's going to destroy evil. He's going to get rid of all of these horrific consequences of that brokenness in this fall that's happened. And we know who that is, right? That seed, this descendant, this human being would actually be the word that became flesh. And dwelt among us. That God himself would take on man. Become a man named Jesus. And that he would do, first of all, what Adam didn't do here. He, he would do what Adam wouldn't do here. Because, think about it. Have you ever wondered, what, where was Adam? Have you ever wondered that? Like, when, when the woman is having this conversation with this serpent, Satan. Where was Adam? Uh, if you ever wondered that question. So, so in other words, what should have Adam been doing? Because I just imagine, and I can't help but imagine him like on the couch. Bag of potato chips, remote control. Watching a football game or something. And his wife's over here tangling with the greatest you know, being of evil that's ever existed. And he's like flipping channels. It's, you know, it's like, where was the man? And here's the thing, instead of sitting on the couch, he should have been over there stomping on the head of that serpent. Instead, there he is. But here's the thing, and he may not know. He, he, he might have said, I, 
See, that, that, it was that woman. She did it. I didn't do it. She did it. Remember that? We already saw that. And he's like saying, basically, I didn't know. But here's the thing. Ignorance is not an excuse for breaking the law. I discovered this one time. I was speeding down the road. And I got, the lights come on behind me. And we got pulled over. And the, this nice gentleman cop came up to the, my window and says, Did you know you were doing, you know, you know, 60 and a 40 or something like that? It's like, it was, six, it was a 40 mile an hour zone? I had no idea. Guess what? I got to take it. Because ignorance is not an excuse for disobedience. And we see that here. And so instead of doing what he should have been doing, which was fighting for his family, fighting against evil, instead he's checked out somewhere. We don't even know. However, a descendant is coming. A man is coming. And we know the Apostle Paul calls him the second Adam. The new Adam who would come and he would do what Adam and we cannot do. He would live a perfect life that we don't live. He would come and he would do what we didn't do. And then it says here, he's going to crush the head of the serpent, but his heel is going to be wounded. He's going to be wounded in the, in the, in the picture. So you see the picture here? That that's just saying it's going to come, and he's going to destroy evil and death, but in the process, he is going to be greatly wounded. And we know that when Jesus came, he would do what the first Adam didn't do, what we don't do, but that he would also be wounded. By his wounds, we are healed. That he would hang and die on a cross He would suffer and die, paying the penalty for all of our guilt and sin and disobedience. And now, the good news is, he's in a process of restoration. And in the gospel, in this good news, our relationships can be restored. We're free of guilt and shame. We can walk out of the cycles of the blame game. And more than that, we can experience true fellowship with God himself. And, and, and not in a perfect way now, but in one day we will walk with God again in paradise. We will know true fellowship and love of God without any barrier, without any um, shadow and hints, the garbage that has so marred it over the years. So, you know, there's a, um, a television show I used to watch on and off. It's, it was called, I think it was House, Dr. House or House MD. I can't remember exactly the name. But what I liked about the show was, and the, the whole premise of the show was um, that this doctor was like really good at diagnosing diseases and problems in people that nobody else could catch. And if you've ever been sick or had an, uh, uh, an ailment or whatever, and the doctors really couldn't figure out what it was, that is a terrible place to be. Because they're supposed to be the ones that know what's wrong and fix you, right? I mean, that's what you pay them so much for. But here's the thing. So it just points to the fact that we need a solid, true diagnosis of what's wrong if we're going to f- figure out how to fix it. And so if you want to 
know what it means to be human and you want to live what it means to be truly human, we got to know what's wrong. And the Bible clearly tells us what's wrong. We're broken by sin. However, the good news is it's not a terminal diagnosis. There is a, there's a cure. Jesus himself, the second Adam, would come and crush the head of the serpent by being wounded. We have a great need. There's a great solution. And so, but here's the thing. It's free. The solution is not some pharmaceutical company that's going to charge you, overcharge you. It's free. It's a gift. Paid for by Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace. Thank you so much for um, the good news.